0: Running a good business never really goes out of style. So, you know, I would focus less on what investors care about and a lot more on what your customers care about and how do you serve them, uh, you know, and paying particularly close attention to, can you do it in a profitable way? Uh, and if you can't, that ultimately is not a long-term, very sustainable business. So, you know, pay attention to your cost, pay attention to where you've got opportunity and, you know, spend money accordingly. Uh, of course, to the extent you can get to, you know, cash flow positive, uh, then the question of, you know, what the markets look like, become somewhat irrelevant to you.
1: Welcome to Same
2: Same But Different, the show that brings together two startup founders to discuss a similar decision they made on their journey to building a growth stage company. But like every journey, the path getting there and the results are unique to that startup.
1: My name is Anu Hariharan, and I'm a managing director at Y Combinator, where I work with our growth stage companies. I'm excited today because we have two amazing guests, Christina Cacioppo, the co-founder and CEO of Vanta, and Wade Foster, the co-founder and CEO of Zapier. Vanta automates security and compliance for startups and was part of YC's winter 2018 batch. Zapier Automate's work by connecting with over 5,000 apps and was part of YC's summer 2012 batch. Welcome Christina and Wade. Sanu. Thank you so much for having us. Before I go dive in, where are you guys joining us from?
0: Central Missouri. Uh,
1: San Francisco. Awesome. Well, both Christina and Wade made the decision early on in their company to actually take a disciplined approach to fundraising. I think both of them flipped the equation of a typical startup founder. Instead of raising money uh, to enable a certain amount of growth, they just eliminated the idea of fundraising, controlled the spend, and decided how to grow the business. I remember this vividly because I actually know both your journeys from the early days. Um, I, I remember Zapier, Wade, you, even though you moved from Missouri to Mountain View, you decided not to fundraise, built the company entirely remote, even before remote was cool. And Christina, you went through YC almost six years after Zapier did. But even though your batch and your, a lot of your peers were you know, focused on raising money, a lot of money after Demo Day and Series A, somehow you were able to be very disciplined and focused on building the company versus fundraising. So I want to first start about fundraising. You know, both of you bootstrapped for a while, but it's sort of taken a different journey. Uh, you know, Vanta pretty much bootstrapped almost I would call until your first probably the growth stage. But then you decided to fundraise and now you're valued at 1.6 billion. So Christina, why, why did you wait so long? Can you talk us through your journey from 2018? For how long did you decide to bootstrap and why did you pursue that path? Yeah, and Anu, I'm sorry, I'd, I
2: broke up a little bit on my side, but that was a question for me about waiting so long before
1: fundraising. Yes. Yeah, so you went through winter 2018. You, didn't fund, yep. you probably raised some money in demo day, but you didn't fundraise for a while. So, can you walk yep. through the journey? Why did totally. you decide to wait and when did you race? Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. So, okay. So, as Anu mentioned, went through YC and winner, did seed round after that. Um, and then just very much tried to build Vanta into you know what we jokingly and also seriously call a proper business, but at least a business that could stand on its own. And this was really important to me because I, I actually graduated, like finished school and, and kind of graduated into the 2008 recession, basically, and was really fortunate to get a, get a job generally and then get a job at an early stage VC fund. And it was just really clear that not just the folks I worked for, but generally investors really wanted to fund businesses that did not actually need funding, and kind of conversely, if you if you want to be funded, the best way to do that or achieve that is to actually not need funding. Um, and so there there was a little bit of like that that I think just got kind of baked into me very early in my career. And so when we finished YC, uh, we you know I mean did have that seed round, um, and we're kind of operating toward cash flow break even. Um, not profitably, but break even. And the idea was we just, you know, again, really wanted to build an actual business that in some ways didn't need to be funded such that we could get it funded uh, more easily. And honestly, we wanted to make sure we were truly building something that people wanted. And I say this because also kind of we're having that neat experience of working in early stage VC, you see a lot of folks working on things that People may or may not want, um, but when you you know have a bunch of money or you're kind of not uh, almost you're not, you're not as forced to to confront that reality, um, and so this was another way of just kind of that check on: are we building toward product market fit? Do we think we have it at this stage? Um, and so that that was also really helpful and really important too, because I think there's you know. for founders in particular, like a very pernicious failure mode here where you can work on something for years and if no one kind of actually ends up wanting it, if you don't get to product market fit, that's just really frustrating. You've spent all this time on something that ultimately kind of people don't want and doesn't really go anywhere and certainly doesn't achieve the like goals you probably had when you founded the company. And uh, having done that several times in my earlier career, right, having built things that I thought people wanted, but they actually didn't, um, that's just really frustrating. And so uh, very much almost trying to, to orient early Vanta around that not happening. And by that, I mean, you know, really confirming to us that we were building something people wanted and using, you know, their willingness to pay and their willingness to pay up front as a proxy for that. So that's not how we thought about it
1: great i think the biggest takeaway here for the audience is what you exactly said christina which is investors want to fund businesses that don't need money which is so true um in fact we often tell founders the best time to fundraise is when you have a lot of cash on the balance sheet now let me double click can you double click a little more christina on the exact journey which is how much did you raise at seed and then how long did you wait before you raised the next round? What was the scale of Vanta roughly? And why did you decide to raise, especially if you were break even at that time or cash flow positive?
2: Yeah. So, we, so, okay, so this YC seed round um, was about $3 million, which in 2018 felt like, you know, I think was on probably the the at least upper half of post YC seed rounds. Um, so, we did that. And then we, and that was again, call it April, 2018. Um, and then we mostly didn't touch that money. It kind of went up up and down a little bit, month-to-month fluctuations, but mostly it was still in the bank when we went out in early 2021 to raise a series A. So that round closed in, I think, April of 2021. So April of last year, then about three years after our seed round, at that point, we were at $10 million in revenue. Uh, and so while it's, you know, a series A, it's the first round, it kind of looked more like a B or a C round almost. Cause so we were at $10 million in revenue. It was a $50 million raise. And, you know, honestly, one of the big questions I got from a lot of investors was it looks, look, you've gotten to $10 million on kind of not a lot of money. Uh, in some ways, I'd like, you know, we'd like to give you more, but are you just going to have it sit there, right? Like, are you actually going to start spending it? And the answer was like, we're definitely going to start spending it because if I, if we weren't, I would not be here and I would not be, you know, trying to dilute, you know, the company and all the people who have that's, that's kind of not fun. Um, but it felt, you know, we had kind of true signs of product market fit. Um, all of our kind of sales and marketing metrics sort of implied that, you know, if you, if you spent more money on kind of customer acquisition, you would actually, you know, sort of like put a dollar into the machine, get more than a dollar out. So in some way we were sort of foolish to not being doing that. And then the other part, very specific to Vanta that factored in was... We had such good product-market fit, I think, because we had created the product and created the category, and we were the only one doing what we did. Um, and it was hugely resonant with the market, and that was wonderful. Um, but others were starting to catch on, and so there were the first signs of like people basically copying Vanta, and it was Vanta, but a you know, different name and kind of worse product, but they were going out and getting funding because investors were like, well, you know, I don't know if I'll be able to invest in Vanta, so I'll invest in knockoff Vanta. Um and, you know, as much as they can, you know, kind of joke about knockout Fanta, a part of this is just very much execution based. And, uh, you know, I do, really didn't want to be one of those Silicon Valley stories where you're like, oh, yeah, that company, you know, did the innovation and created the product, but ultimately lost the market. Um, and so, you know, winning the market we created was, was very much the goal and very much part of why we raised when we did and why it was kind of so such a, quote, unquote, big raise that we did.
1: It's so funny you say that knockoff went as an example, I can say, for every YC company, there are so many knockoffs. So, but what I'm hearing is, Christina, you're saying, hey, you had such strong product market fit that you said, if I had more cash, I can grow this thing much faster. And I know it works because we have enough proof points and we're already at 10 million revenue. But let me push you a little bit mm-hmm. because it's three years, For three years at YC, well, all your peers were raising left, right, and center. And I know that a lot of people preempted, tried to preempt you, (laughs) right? They were like, hey, big cash. Why you held back with a lot of discipline, which I think is actually harder to do. So tell, walk us through, what was the mental model? It was not that you were not able to raise. People were giving you money saying, Christina, you don't need to fundraise. What was your mental model on saying, no, I'm not ready now? I don't want the cash now. And why was April, was April 2021 the right moment? And how did you say no to all those prior investors?
2: Yeah. So the thing I told investors, and it was mostly true, is honestly a little bit of posturing, but was, uh, again, I can, if I take that money and put it in the bank account, you know, and we'll, you know, Series A from whatever firm, whatever valuation, like everyone at Vanta will feel very good. And then we will wake up and realize, oh, we don't actually know how to spend that money or we can't spend it. And so now we just diluted ourselves, you know, 10, 20 percent for sort of like a couple of days of feeling good. Like that. That's not a good trade. Anyway, kind of jokey. But there's actually kind of a real point there, which was we. In theory, sort of knew you're like, OK, yeah, well, what do you do with the money? You hire people, you spend more on marketing, You, you know, whatever. Sure. We were hiring as quickly as we could. Um, And, you know, I would I would also say early Vanta wasn't the best at hiring either, but we were hiring as quickly as we could. And so it's like, well, will more money help us hire more people? Not really. Right. Because we're we're almost trying to, you know, bankrupt ourselves right now by hiring uh, and uh, it's still still not going fast enough. And so similar with marketing, you're like, well, yes, we should do more marketing, but like step one, we need a couple, we need a marketing person. We have no marketing people. It's kind of a point of pride in the early days and also a tremendous embarrassment. And so I think there was just a very pragmatic piece uh, to it for me, which was, again, we can take this money and feel really good for a couple of days, but then, then we'll just, you know, have dilution and kind of be in the same place. So let's not take that money until we know we can actually use it, right? So we like reset recruiting or, you know, find a few tremendous early marketing people, which we did, you know, things like that. So I think it's that sort of pragmatism coupled with the confidence. And again, I think this so is the HVC experience of truly, you know, to the, unless something, unless we go horribly off the rails ourselves, investors will still want to fund us. Um, and so actually waiting longer just makes them want to fund us more and kind of puts us in a stronger negotiating position. And so, you know, in some ways, it's just kind of good if you can wait and, and justify it to the business that way. So that was the thought process.
1: Great. Yeah. Two things there, uh, which I think actually probably your US suite, the VC experience really helped. One, you touched on dilution quite a bit. And I've often seen founders sometimes miss that. Like, it's really cool to keep raising rounds, but actually you're diluting yourself and causing more dilution for your employees. And then the second one you touched on was, hey, if you don't know what you're going to do with that extra cash, then why are you diluting yourself, right? Which which makes more sense too. Um, I'm going to turn it over to you, Wade. Your journey uh, started off similar to uh, Vanta, uh, but you never raised. So... <laughs> Um, And I know every time I meet you and we talk about this, you say, I don't know what to do with the money on the balance sheet, so why will I raise more? So why don't you talk through Wade about your experience, especially go back to 2012 when you went through YC, how much money did you raise at the seed, and then kind of why did you not raise? What has the journey of Zipia been?
0: 12 we raised uh 1.3 million you know right around demo day post yc um and in hindsight if i could go do it again i would have tried to do about half that um knowing sort of what i know now now the mindset that we were in at the time was we were going to sort of do a seed round and we were going to see how long we could make that last it was like treat this like the last money we were ever going to get and the main reason we did it was um you know we just moved to california and uh the rent was pretty freaking high. Uh, so just to like pay for things, we, we needed a little bit of cushion in the, in the bank account. I think we were making 6K of MRR a month at the time. So like a nice little start, but by no means uh, were we you know sort of uh, at the trajectory that we thought we could be at. Now, the sort of like rationale we had around fundraising was I think sort of split focused. Um, at the time, you know the prior company myself and my co-founders had worked at was um, a, a fairly large, fast-growing company here in the Midwest that was owned by two brothers, 50-50, had never raised a dime. And I was employee 500 there. And 10 months later, uh, when I left, there was over 1,000 people there. And so I'd seen sort of upfront like, this story around how you know, bootstrap companies could grow quickly. And as a result, like, I was already just a little bit skeptical for... Uh, a lot of the advice you'd get, you'd hear these lines like, "No big company could ever be built without doing X or Y or Z. And I had this upfront example of that just not being true. And so, you know, you hear that and then you combine that with uh, a lot of the sort of stories you hear about, you know, uh, investors sort of messing up these little seedlings of companies. And you start to go, you know, whether that's true or not, like some of it I think is, you know, rightfully earned by investors and some of it I don't think is fair. Uh, at this point in time. But um, as a result, you can sort of get into the mindset of where we were at, where it was like, hey, we want to, you know, sort of maintain control over this thing. And we really want to be able to sort of, um, you know, do it on our own. Um, And so that was the mindset that we were in. And there was another thing along the way that I think we figured out, which was how to grow our business in a very cost effective way. You know, we figured out uh, how to uh, generate customers at a very low Customer acquisition cost, in fact, almost zero, uh, and as a result, folks would convert through sort of this like product-led growth motion, and um, you know, as soon as they'd start paying, that was uh, you know rev- uh, profits for us—not just revenue, but actual profits—like within a month or two. Uh, and so that meant that not only um, you know we we sort of just like philosophically like oriented more towards this like bootstrapper mindset, but we also had a business that structurally could pull that off. Which I think is one of the things that um, folks often miss when they sort of look at this model they think, hey, I, I philosophically would like it this to do it this way, but they're also not in a sort of business that allows them to do that uh, and so it's just really tricky to do. Um, and then you know a lot of the stuff that Christina shared, you know I would echo like at a certain point, you know we were hiring and pushing and growing and investing as fast as we could. Uh, in fact, if I think back through our headcount growth, it looked something like this. It was you know three Started with three founders, and then it was team of seven the next year, team of sixteen the year after that, team of thirty-five, I want to say the year after that, seventy-five the year after that, 160 the year after that. So, you know, we're pushing headcount up, doubling it year over year over year, and sometimes more than doubling it, which for us, like that was aggressive. We're first-time founders, we're learning how to manage a team, we're learning how to, you know, hire executives, we're learning how to do all this stuff. And it sort of felt like we were just on the edge of the wheels coming off the bus so often than not. Um, and we're just fortunate that the revenue was coming in, that uh, we didn't have to worry about funding being the blocker for us to continue growing. It felt like there was these other constraints in the business that we always had to address first. And so, you know, when we sort of think about like, hey, would, would we do more with more capital? Oftentimes, we just look internally at like, what's the constraint? What's holding us back? And if the answer to that question isn't money, we don't really think about funding. We just think about what are the things that we got to do to address the current constraint that we have today. Uh, And that's sort of been a good story for us. uh, And it's allowed us to avoid, uh, you know, dilution, keep control, all these other things that I think have had uh, been really effective and helpful for us along the way.
1: Uh, wait, that's great example, Swede, and I actually, I, I loved how you started, which is said, if you had to go back, you will raise half your seed. I just want everyone to hear that. So he, uh, Wade is saying he would have raised 600K and not 1.3, but Wade, I think there are lots of benefits that you have of the Zapier model. And so I want to uh, you know unravel that here. How much of that was deliberate by you versus how much of that was the business model itself lent to it? So... First, let me ask you, did you always want to build a bootstrap company where you just like, I really need this to be bootstrapped and we're gonna find product hacks and is that how you landed on this idea? And can you touch a little bit on, when did you know Zephyr had product market fit and when did you know it was a business model that that could be supported in a bootstrap way?
0: Probably predisposed to that just because of growing up in central Missouri, like just didn't know, like, you know, venture funding wasn't really a thing. Um, so you sort of are just exposed to a lot more classic business, um, where, you know, you sort of, uh, you, you, make a buck and then you can spend a buck. Uh, you don't get to spend a buck before you have one. Uh, and so that sort of orientation was just sort of like, I guess, in the DNA and the bones of the company. Uh, I don't know that we are like opposed to this other thing. It was just more of an unknown. It was just sort of like, how do you do that? That sort of feels like a, a hard thing to learn how to do. Uh, whereas the other thing just sort of felt very like natural. Uh, I guess. Uh, and so that was sort of the mindset. Um, in terms of then, like, you know, when we felt product market fit, I think, you know, we felt it pretty early on. Um, you know, I'd worked at a smaller company before Zapier that never got to product market fit. And so I remember, you know, being on the go-to-market side of that business and trying to do anything I could to get, like, to to sell the product. And, you know, i tried like direct sales, I tried BD deals, I tried like paid marketing and email marketing and SEO and like all these different things. And just none of it worked. It was like, it was just grueling. And with Zapier, I don't wanna say it was easy, but you know, the first person I got on phone call was just like, great, how much do I pay you? When do I sign up? And I was just like, oh, I guess when you make something people care about, it's just easier, like people just want it. And so we felt it pretty early on even before like revenue was coming in the door, even before like we had, you know, a sort of um, really strong go-to-market engine around it, we sort of felt like, okay, like people want this thing. This is gonna help them out. Uh, And so that was useful. And then the second piece was we had figured out like a repeatable go-to-market motion very, very early on. Uh, So we knew how to use uh, search and partnerships and content in a way that could grow the customer base without, a ton of capital. Uh, and so figuring that out early, early on was a huge advantage to us. And then there was other structural things that, you know, I think just gave us a little bit of an edge. So for example, we had this philosophy of don't hire till it hurts. And so as a result, that instilled some discipline around spending money because the biggest expense you have as a a company is the headcount. Uh, and so just by saying, we're not going to, we're not going to hire sort of like in a speculative way, we're going to hire in a very like, you know, known way where it's like this problem, we have it, we feel it. And we know we have it because like we're doing the work and we feel it every single day. That meant that when we hired someone, we knew exactly the job they were going to do and we knew exactly where that money was going to go. So we did things like that. Um, you know, the remote work model, um, you know, at the time it was because one, we sort of didn't have a network in Silicon Valley. So we just like, we don't really know any people here. But two, it ended up being a way that a tiny little company could get like strong talent and not have to go toe to toe with Google and Facebook and Netflix and all these other folks who were paying, you know, just exorbitant salaries. Whereas in, you know, the Midwest and other areas, you could, you know, pay really good salaries and folks would, you know, be thrilled to work for a company like Zapier in, you know, 2012. Obviously that's changed a lot now. So I don't think you could do that same, you know, playbook over again, but you know, there was just little things like that where we were just looking for places where we could get an edge. We could get we, we just sort of could take advantage of something that most other companies weren't really paying all that close attention to. Uh, and as a result, like, I think it helped us uh, in addition to some of the like structural advantages the, the business just
1: had. That's such a uh, fascinating journey. How many customers wait, just for the audience, can you share the scale of Zapier today? How many customers you've touched, how many Zaps, or any scale that you're able to share?
0: 100,000 customers, I think, is the latest numbers we've maybe shared.
1: Great, and let me ask you, so hiring, you touched on that, and I think one takeaway here is your philosophy was, we don't hire until it hurts. So that means, really, there was a gap, and, you're stretched or something is broken and you need to hire. One of the biggest pushbacks founders will say is, hey, if I fundraise and if I get, uh, you know, if I'm able to raise money from a really good investor, it really helps accelerate hiring for me. And you never hired, I mean, you still never raised money. Um, You did have some, you know, secondary rounds along the way, but it was much later, much, much later. So how did you manage hiring? For the first five years when no one said here's Zapier that raised series a from this silicon Valley," you didn't get any press so how are you able to hire so well
0: well so i think the biggest thing that we did well was um you know we decided we were going to hire in a distributed remote way so that already set us apart because very few companies were doing that at the time and two we wrote about it so we would write you know about like hey here's what we're learning about building this company this way And that attracted the attention of uh, folks, you know, throughout, um, you know, the United States and and the world, candidly, that were just sort of like, hey, that model is interesting. That's intriguing. Uh, So that helped us get a little bit of um, attention to us. Um, We also added like little we're hiring links to our main nav. And um, the user base that we had was a good recruiting pool for us uh, because we had, you know, customers that were, you know, excited and passionate about seeing the product get advanced. And then we tried random stuff too. Like in 2016, we launched this thing called the Delocation package, which was, Hey, we'll, you know, pay you 10 K to relocate from San Francisco to anywhere else in the world, which at the time was like a, a pretty wild idea. And it like broke into mainstream news and was like a, a huge amount of attention and buzz at the time. Uh, so we tried random stuff like that and all those things just raised the profile of Zapier as an employer.
1: Yeah, I remember uh, a lot of people applied to Zapier at the time because you were giving the option to be remote and you were even willing to move people to different places. But let me, let you know, I want to push you on that a little bit because I know it's not as easy as you made it out to be, even though the steps you laid out are, are pretty much what you did. There might be employees that you really wanted to hire and they would have asked you, hey, does Zapier make money? It's a startup at the end of the day, it's risky. It's not, doesn't seem at least perception-wise blessed by a VC. Um, how did you handle those in, you know, especially if you thought a candidate was really good and you wanted them to accept the job, like what was the hardest part of being, of using this approach of being bootstrapped?
0: Really wasn't an issue, uh, when you're hiring outside the Valley, uh, that's very much a like Valley centric point of view. But if you're hiring across the country, these folks um, were just thrilled to be getting to work for a modern, you know, company. You know, I think the town I grew up in, there was two old school folks that hired developers, but there was a lot of good developers in town. And so just the fact that like Zapier was an interesting company working on a, a, like pure play software, it just made us stand out so much more than anyone else. And the comp we could pay was better than those local towns, and so they just didn't have that type of concern around, hey, you know, what's your you know, VC, like who's your name brand VC that's raised, that you've raised from. Um, And we were already profitable. You know, we got to be profitable by 2014. And at that time we'd had 10 people. So we weren't really hiring like, you know, all that quickly. Uh, So it just never came up. The first time it really actually came up was as we were starting to get to scale and we needed to hire executives Uh, and executives, definitely a much more savvy uh, sort of um, group of folks that you're recruiting. Um, you know, we were looking for folks who had experience doing that. There definitely is a uh, much more density of executives in, you know, Silicon Valley and, you know, who've had exposure to those companies. And so that was the first time we really had to get a lot better at our sort of just growth pitch, I guess.
1: Got it. And thank you for reminding us that that is a value centric view, which is very true. And I've heard this consistently from so many founders that, um, you know, hiring outside the Bay Area, especially for engineering, um, has proven to be a big net positive for a lot of companies uh, for this reason that you're highlighting. I wanna switch gears and I'll come back to you, Wade, uh, but I wanna switch gears to Christina. Christina, talk to us. So you heard Wade's journey of product market fit and hiring. Can you highlight what was Vanta's journey to product market fit in those three years where you didn't raise, right? but 10 million revenue like, of course you had strong product market fit. But in those three years, what did product market fit look like? How did you actually measure it? And talk a little bit about hiring. You also didn't have any VC money, but arguably you're based in San Francisco. So I don't know if you hired people in SF. And so talk about, did you run into perception issues or how did you manage that with just the seed money? For
2: sure. Okay, so do you think, so product market fit and then also hiring, do 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 I have that right? Right. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So on the product market fit. So I think as a, uh, I'll I'll go through kind of tactical steps, but, but first just like as an overarching frame, I think you can't raise your way into the right product. Um, and that sounds obvious, but I actually think again, to to some of the the conversation of the last 20 minutes or so, like it sometimes kind of makes it seem like you can, but I, I don't think you can. And so, you know, if you're thinking about raising, I think it's really important to think through what problems money can solve and what problems it can't. And I think, yeah, product market fit is one of those things that it can't money can't really solve, um, right? Because if you can't get kind of people with an arm's reach, however you define that, interested in your product, uh, running all the Google ads in the world will probably not help. Um, and so what we did was we started with kind of the the our very first customers were honestly like other founder friends in San Francisco. And the advantage to that was these people were willing to take a bet on us as people. And it was basically a bit of like, Hey, Christina, I don't actually know how much you know about security and compliance. And I'm not sure your product is any good because, you know, it's early days and no one is using it. But I know you and I know you kind of want to do this well and don't like to fail. So I think you will work very hard on this. And, you know, I'm willing to take that sort of bet. And that was really like how we got the first people to try it out, which was kind of like the the foot in the door, preferably. And then you actually have to build a good product, right? Because even your friends will be like, look, this is great. But, you know, you should you should do something else with your life. Like if it's not working out truly. And that's actually kind of helpful if, if they start saying that. All to say, though you know, the very early versions of Vanta were sort of going to those folks and for $0 because we didn't know if we had anything and basically trying to build a product with them. And it started in spreadsheets and then eventually moved to code. And the reason, even though we could code, the reason it started in spreadsheets was because it's actually just kind of hard to change the code you're writing, but it's a lot easier to change a spreadsheet. And so it was just easier prototyping. But anyway, we'd have this early product and then you know, you kind of go to people and a couple of months later, I'd, I'd call them up and sort of be like, hey, step one, like, please be honest with me. Like the nicest thing you can do for me as my friend is to be honest, not tell me what, you know, I think you should hear. Because like, if you tell me I should work on this, I'm going to go pour the next couple years of my life into it. And if you don't think I should do that, goodness, tell me now. Anyway, so you're like, step one, please be honest. Step two, it was, okay, I just, you know, gave you this product and we spent the last couple of months working on it what is it like you tell me what the product is and that was a test for like a little bit of like what they thought I gave them um and again when I built stuff in the past and done this mostly when I'd asked this question people would not say what I wanted them to say and it was very sad but it was also very clarifying um in the case of Manta people would be like oh it's a security and compliance advisor that told me what I need to do to sort of stand up security at my company and get a compliance certification like SOC 2 and someone would tell me that, and I'd be like, whoa, that's what I wanted you to say, but you actually said it. I never. This has never happened before. <laughs> so anyway, so there, there was that of, like, can you play back what I want to hear? Um, uh, which I, good. I think is actually a high bar. Um, and then it was like, oh, okay, great. Well, you know, now that we have this, you know, security and compliance advisor that, you know, does these wonderful things for you,
1: uh,
2: how much, what's a reasonable price to pay for it? And in my head, I was like, please say more than $0. 20 bucks would sound good right now, right? Uh, you know, and people would they'd be like, oh, you know, maybe a $1,000 a month or $10,000 a year. I'm sort of like, what? <laughs> Pardon? I just gave you some spreadsheets. Um, anyway, but sort of go back and forth and be like, okay, what, you know, how much would you pay? What's an expensive price? What's a like prohibitively expensive price, right? Like if I charge you this, you would just laugh at me. And you sort of get those numbers and anyway, ran this exercise like three or four times with different companies. Uh, and it was really helpful. Um, again, with the caveat of like, you got to get people to be honest with you, especially people who like and care about you and sort of convince them, again, the best thing they can do for you is, you know, tell you if you're running down a dark alley. Um, but give them something, give them your product and then ask them to, you know, describe what it is. See if see if that helps is what you want them to say basically. And then ask them how much they think they would, you know, pay for it. And we did that in the early days and there was some iteration, but you know, kind of by the time we got into YC and this was actually part of what convinced us it was the right time to apply is we had these early users roughly understanding what we were building and roughly saying, "Oh yeah, I'd actually pay you." And then we went through YC and then, you know, then it was a lot of, you know, outreach to other YC founders and things were actually moving, like people were buying, they were signing contracts, they were paying, again, what seemed like comically large amounts of money at the time, Uh, you know, my joke here that's not a joke is prior to Vanta, the last thing I sold was Girl Scout cookies, it's kind of true, you know, and so you're just like, the sales were working and by all rights, they shouldn't. It just kind of felt, I mean, you're still pushing boulders up the hill every day, to be clear, but it was, some parts of it were easier than it seemed like rationally they should have been. So that's kind of on the early product market fit piece. Um, I can move over to the hiring, but pause for that.
1: 2018, you went through YC. You did a great job walking through how you knew the early users really wanted it, which is test. Ask the users to describe the value prop and see if it matches what you want them to say. But talk a little bit about post 2018 in those three years, which when did you know you had product market fit? Was it 12 months after YC, 18, 24? And what were the signs? Like when, did, when were you super confident about, okay, this thing is ready to scale?
2: Yeah, okay, sorry about that. Let me take my headphones out. Hopefully this is better. Um, okay, so when through. so felt, I mean, I think reasonably good going into YC. I think you sort of have to. Um, so, went through, so went through YC, uh, you know, got spit out in you know, March, April 2018. I think we felt pretty good because we'd like hit the demo day goal. We'd raise the seed round. Everything was great. In some ways, we felt like everything was so great that uh, I stopped selling for six months because um, it was just the two founders. Uh, and we had this thing we wanted to build, but we were building very slowly, just the two of us. And so... Spent the next six months recruiting engineers. And uh, it was probably the right thing to do, but I distinctly remember kind of end of 2018 was like, okay, cool, now we have this team, now I'll start selling again. Everything is coming up roses, and actually going to the YC office and meeting with a partner who very crisply was like, you guys are off track. It has been six months, you have no revenue growth. You know, you should be on track to, you know, uh, have whatever quadrupled your revenue such that you can raise a series A and uh, you guys haven't. So uh, you, you should get on that um, so you don't fail. And I walked out of said or the, that meeting and, and the YC office and was like, well, shoot. <laughs> I guess I'm not so great at everything here. Um, and that was definitely a low point, uh, but sort of, you know, walked back and was like, okay, well we gotta, you know, get back on track. And, and, you know, that means customer traction and selling. And I think it'll work, but you know, I guess proof is in the pudding. And so just spent kind of all my time and mental energy on, on selling Vanta and about six months after that, we were, you know, kind of, I don't know, back on track, whatever that means, but, uh, you know it was going so well it was like okay now let's go hire a salesperson this feels better um but it it definitely wasn't a linear path um there was, there's definitely a, a kind of potential stall out trough in there that was uh, uh not not the not the highest moment at Danta. let's say
1: that's so helpful because um and thank you for sharing that a lot of people read stories in the press and think everything went up and to the right, uh, and I can imagine how the YC vo- officers would have gone, uh, but hey, here you are. Now, can you touch a little bit on hiring? So talk about those three years. How many people did you hire each of those three, and how were you able to do that without having raised a series A?
2: Yeah, so this is, okay, so this is funny. Um, so in the early days, like in 2018, we hired Four people, I think, mostly engineers, and that pitch was like, "Hey, come sit like on the floor of this office that kind of smells funny, and like build stuff with us, and won't it be fun?" Um, and again, I'm being a little loose and jokey here, but that was that was roughly the pitch. Um, uh, in 2019, we hired maybe 10 people, and mostly in the back half of that year, and then the pitch was. Hey, we're a seed company, but we actually have product market fit, and like look at the customer graph and look at the sale, like the ARR graph, and you know, sort of you can arbitrage this, right? Like, come join a small team that actually has product market fit, and so you get the benefits of a small team, but you don't have to go wander in the desert for a while. 2020, we probably hired 30 or so people, um, and then it was it was kind of that the prior pitch, but more. It was like, hey. We have kind of millions of dollars in ARR, um, but are still valued like a seed company. Uh, So again, arbitrage for you, come in and get sort of cheap equity, but uh, actually much more certainty. That was hard, uh, honestly, because as good as that pitch sounds, a lot of people were like, oh, it's a seed company, it's super risky. And we'd be like, no, 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 we have like $6 million in revenue. And they're like, oh, well, you're not a seed company then. And you're like, well, you know, kind of uh, technically, yes, but also uh, anyway, there was just a lot of or like, oh, well, this all is too good to be true. Like there must be a catch in here because no one is a seed company with, you know, six million dollars in revenue. And we'd be like, uh, but but we are we promise like here's some spreadsheets that prove it. Anyway, there was just a lot of back and forth there. Um, And I think we also just lost a lot of people in the front who were like, oh, I don't want a seed company. This one can't be it, you know. Um, Anyway, and so then the next year in 2021, we raised the A um, and recruiting got a lot easier uh, in a way that I find painful. And you can maybe hear it in my voice, but it was just because people were like, oh, it's way more de risked you know, Sequoia backed them, uh clearly they'll be successful now, or like whatever, and from my perspective, it was like, hey, we're the same company before the day before the day after the Sequoia round, whatever uh you just get less equity, right you just get much less at a much higher price um and so it's actually a worse deal, uh but that is you know again, that was my like hyper rational take on it and the reality is, the survey did, in fact, help us recruit, uh, both in terms of attracting candidates, like kind of top of funnel, and then also closing candidates. Even though, again, it was a worse financial outcome, uh, and they had joined like a month prior. Um, but anyway, the you know kind of arguing with candidates about their rational economic decisions is not a winning recruiting strategy. I can I can confirm now, having tried it.
1: So Christina, what you said, that's so interesting, that it got a lot easier after that CDSA, people said, hey, Sequoia led you around, should be a lot more dearest. But that like almost conflicts with what Wade said, right? Wade said, hey, I didn't see any issue as long as I was hiring people outside the Valley. So where you primarily was, went up primarily building its team in SF and Mm. where most of your engineers from SF,
2: yes so prior to covid we were all sf um and then during covid did you know kind of spread out much more and it's still team by team there's some nuance but yes th- these were all folks in sf yep
1: so how big is your team today and how distributed are you like what percentages in the bay area versus outside
2: yeah so we're about 250 people today um the I don't actually have these exact numbers, which sort of tells you how we think about them as a company, but call it a quarter in the Bay Area, broadly, Um, and probably almost a quarter in, like, New York City. So we have kind of hubs there. Everyone else is spread out across the country, although geographically it probably looks like you'd expect, like, bigger pockets in Seattle and Austin and Atlanta and Boston and, you know, cities like that.
1: Got it. And did you see issue, so you said all those complaints or issues that you heard about associated with fundraising and hiring was primarily Bay Area, but not for the 75% of your group?
2: Basically, or a caveat in that pre-pandemic, yes. Post-pandemic, I think it's a little different because like Bay Area people moved to Atlanta, just one example, right? Or New Yorkers moved to Atlanta. And so there's, I think, my guess, you know, relative to 2019, actually a lot more startup savvy people in Atlanta and so um probably still get that too
1: got it so wait tell me if you're seeing something different was it easier the first seven years at zapier uh versus 2020 hit and everyone went remote has how has your hiring changed has it become harder
0: um yeah, any I, I will confirm uh you know, Christina's story about like uh, trying to convince uh, candidates on sort of the like, um, you know, their rational economic choices is like definitely a but that's a real thing uh, for these types of companies where they just don't understand like the mechanics of like 409 A's and public valuations and investor prices and, you know, all, all the strike prices, all that sort of stuff. Like that's a whole thing that just is just not very well understood. So I'll confirm that uh, in terms of the pandemic and its impact on recruiting it definitely changed things. You know, I think we had, um, you know, sort of a huge competitive advantage up until the pandemic because just very few companies were doing that. And, you know, most companies said, hey, we're actually going to compete in a remote environment, at least in 2020. And, you know, I'd say a ton of those companies still are doing so. And so the um, pool of people hiring across, you know, the, the country and um, certainly the globe has has changed a lot. We see a lot more competitive offers in, um you know, uh, against companies that we just never saw before. Uh, so that has definitely happened. I think you also saw a huge influx in capital into a ton of these companies. And so the demand for certain types of talent went through the roof. You know, recruiters in particular, you know, were difficult to to, to recruit for. Uh, and so you just saw this, like, really frothy recruiting environment where, you know, people were getting – um you know, amazing offers from um, various companies and, uh, you know, sort of money was changing hands left and right. So that definitely changed the dynamic Um, though. Candidly that's also started to shift again in the last, you know, three, six months um, with sort of the, the um, softening and inflation and interest rates and all that sort of stuff. You know, you've seen companies starting to do, doing a lot of layoffs and things like that. So it's, it's kind of like, okay, now we kind of have the same competitive edge that we've always had. So, Definitely there for, you know, two years or so. It was uh, a much different environment uh, for us to recruit from.
1: That's interesting, you know. uh, So, of course, inflation is really sucks and everyone talks about it. But I think if you look at engineering salary inflations in the last two years, it's probably, you know, a factor of two to three X more than the rest of the inflation. So um, I'm sure every startup felt that. Let me ask you, Wade, because you still didn't fundraise uh, do any equity fundraise for zapier versus christina advantage did right and there were good reasons for her to do that what was your mental model and i know like every year like that i often joke the number one investor request we get is can we get an introduction to wade please so i know there's a lot of people who have asked you will you raise will you take money but you you just have been very really disciplined about it. So what is your advice for the group here or for founders? What was your mental model on will you fundraise or not? And why did you how did you choose not to fundraise versus when were you even remotely tempted and what's the framework you use?
0: Yeah. Uh, I think it comes back to that, like, where are the constraints in the business? Like, what is the things that you're trying to get done and what's holding you back from getting those things done? And, um, you know, figuring out how to address those. For the longest time, it's been like, how quickly can we hire and onboard folks? Um, and, uh, you know, that, necess- that wasn't really a money problem. We had the money to do it. It was just sort of getting our recruiting apparatus to hum along at that rate. Um, you know, it's understanding, like, do we have, you know, what opportunities are we placing bets on? And do we feel like, you know, we can do the dollar end, you know, $2 out thing that Christina was talking about. It's trying to figure out like what problems can money solve versus what they can't solve, like Christina mentioned. And so, you know, those are the mental models we were thinking through and is when we sort of just did the calculus on our side, we were like, we have the revenue, we have the balance sheet to go like chase after these problems. We have other problems that we got to figure out how to address that are more, you know, competency oriented. Uh, And so that's where our focus was. Um, You know, I think there's, the times that, you know, we, we would be tempted would be because of things like, hey, maybe there's some like M&A type thing that we want to go pursue. Uh, and, you know, that requires a big chunk of capital that maybe we don't have access to right now. Um, you know, so those are the types of things that would sort of get our years to perk up. Um, but otherwise, like, you know, it's it's nice, it's flattering to have folks interested in the company, but it never felt like that was in the interest of the business or, or us um, to, to take on that dilution at the
1: time. And one other question for you, Wade. So there's a big debate right now, which is remote versus in person. And, you know, there's one school of thought that says, hey, especially the first two, three years of a company, like remote doesn't work and they feel people need to be in person to crack and find product market fit. And then, you are an exception. You and GitLab, I would say, Zapier and GitLab pretty much built it remote first from day one. Um, and so can you talk a little bit on your early days? How were you able to pull that off by being remote and still get to product market fit? Because it's really rare, right? Very few companies have done that.
0: Well, so the first year of Zapier, the three founders uh, we we're, were mostly in person on stuff. So that might Confirm the rationale or not? I'm not sure. Uh, so you know, we uh, were in Columbia, Missouri, doing like nights and weekend stuff together. Uh, you know, uh, working out of each other's apartments and things like that. And then uh, when we went through YC, we all lived together. Uh, it was post YC where um, you know we started to sort of move about. Uh, and so that was about a year into the company. And at that point in time, you know, we had like clear signs of product market fit. We had clear roadmaps um, to execute on. And so you know, I think there could be merit to that, like, Hey, pre-product market fit innovation stage. Like maybe it is advantageous to be in person. Like it's, uh, that, that could have some, you know, uh, truth to it. And, uh, then once you sort of understand like what it is you need to get, to get done and it really just becomes a, a laundry list of tasks that you got to execute on, maybe it is a little bit easier to do that in a distributed way. Uh, so that certainly is how it played out for Zapier. Um, And I don't know that I know the answer to that. I do think that, um, you know, as you're thinking through building a company, I I would probably, you know, pick a lane. I'd probably pick and decide to be all remote or pick and decide to be all in office. I think the hybrid approach is probably the most challenging of the three options, though. Christina might uh, have a a different opinion on that hearing her like hub and hub model that she's got going on. Uh, But I I do think it's advantageous to say, this is who we are, this is the culture we're gonna build. And then you could orient all of your rituals, all of your practices around that way of working instead of trying to juggle two different modes of, of operating.
1: Got it. Christina, what would your advice be for a founder starting right now? Would you recommend in-person or do you recommend remote or hybrid?
2: Ooh, okay. I feel like some of these questions, I feel like people always say the thing that works for them is the thing that everyone should do. So I think I'm just going to, I just say that because that's what I'm going to do. So everyone should take it with like a massive block of salt. Um, But I think for us, sitting in the same room initially was really helpful because you could just look up and be like, yo, do you see that support request? Do you want to blah, blah, blah? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I got it. Awesome going, right? And you could just do all of that. I think one thing early Vanta was okay at, um, uh, and today we are still only okay at, and I really admire about the distributed teams, is just how good they are at documentation. And I think there's two parts of that. You've got to write things down, which Vanta is pretty okay at. Uh, And then you've got to make sure other people can find your documents. And I think this is where vanta honestly doesn't have the muscle that i think these like remote first companies have gitlab is a canonical example here with their wiki but there's other ways to do it um i think that's just extraordinarily valuable uh because when you are a you know multi-hundred person organization you've just got to figure that out or everyone will be running around confused and these remote first companies sort of have to figure it out at five people because again they don't have the like you know, look up from your desk conversations. Um, So all to say, being in the same room early on really worked for us, uh, just with all of these sort of trade-offs. And I think one thing I I really admire about the remote-first companies is how good they are at, you know, getting people spun up async, writing documentation, finding it, um, you know, really letting people solve their own problems uh, or you know figure out their own answers on their own and not need not needing to block on someone time zones away.
1: Got it and how long Christina in Vanta's experience do you think in person was super important? Was it till you had 30 employees 50 like or is it dependent on employee or is it some other lever?
2: Totally, some other I mean so we were in person till about like Low twenties of employees, and then it was COVID, uh, and it was you know March 2020, so like no one had any options. I do remember that summer, spring, summer, fall being rough, and it's kind of hard to be like, okay, was it rough because you went from you know 20 to 35 people? Was it rough because you went from I don't know these numbers, but like 200 to 600 customers? Uh, Was it rough because there was also a pandemic, and you know it's the early pandemic, so we all weren't leaving our houses, kind of sad pandas, you know. Uh, that was all hard. And I remember at the time distinctly being like, man, <laughs> at least every other company is also going through this right now, but the coordination here is not great and really dragging down things. And this is hard. I distinctly remember that feeling and like call it June, 2020. Um, and yeah, maybe just, uh, what it felt like was, you know, everyone was running around really hard trying to do helpful things, but sort of just working at kind of cross purposes almost. And so there was a lot of effort, but not not the output that anyone wanted. And that was just frustrating for everyone.
1: Yeah, that was a difficult period for everyone uh, transitioning all of a sudden from uh, in-person to remote. But roughly till at least twenty twenty five, if the pandemic had not happened, you know, you were operating under the assumption that this is in-person.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Okay. I think we have time for one last question. So this is a question I'm going to ask, which is top of mind for a lot of people. Christina, how are you thinking about fundraising today in this environment, economic downturn? And what advice do you have for, for funders? Yeah. So
2: in some ways, it's the same advice, just heightened. Um, so we actually did fundraise at the end of April Um, round got announced with series B Uh, it was it was different (laughs) can't confirm Um, uh, in this environment I mean investors are just so focused on metrics and uh, sort of a different set so like 2021 if there were metrics it was all kind of revenue growth how quickly are you growing well, 2022, it was a lot of like, you burn multiple. So for every dollar that you are growing, how many, how many dollars do you have to spend to get it? Um, like, what is your, you know, path toward cash flow break even or path toward profitability or path toward unit economics or whatever it is? Um, so just way more scrutiny on those metrics. Pretty unforgiving uh, if it's like, oh, well, we have growth, but, you know, it, I don't know, we're spending $10 to earn $1, like, then it's just like, no, sorry, next, please. Uh, swipe left. Um, I think in general this isn't, uh, and then I guess with the like public markets crashing, you know, people have a lot of like, well, should I invest in, you know, Vans or should I invest in, I don't know, uh, picture, you know, Datadog at at whatever price it's at that actually looks relatively cheap. Um, those are just harder trade-offs for investors to make. So I do think my kind of macro advice right now, having gone out and fundraised in this environment and you know, successfully are around. Uh, is if you can uh, push your fundraising out, would recommend doing that. And then if you can't, or if you're doing it, it is just all about kind of unit economics, burn multiple, um, CAC to LTV ratios that make sense. Like it does this seem like a business where again, you put in a dollar and you get more than a dollar out in kind of a near term because things where that's not true are just not getting funded.
1: Yes, that's probably good advice, which is uh, focusing on efficiency. And it's not very different from how you started off this episode, Christina, which is, hey, the best time to fundraise is actually when you don't need the money and you're better off always, no matter what the market is, if you're focused on driving both, not just revenue, but also in an efficient way. Uh, Vade, what's your thinking on fundraising in downturn? or When founders reach out to you, what's your advice?
0: You know, uh, running a good business never really goes out of style. So, you know, I would focus less on what investors care about and a lot more on what your customers care about and how do you serve them, Uh, you know, and paying particularly close attention to can you do it in a profitable way. Uh, And if you can't, that ultimately is not a long-term, very sustainable business. So, you know, pay attention to your costs, pay attention to where you've got opportunity and, you know, spend money accordingly. Uh, Of course, to the extent you can get to, you know, cash flow positive, uh, then the question of, you know, what the markets look like becomes somewhat irrelevant to you uh, because you can just run your business as if you would. Uh, so that's sort of like the ultimate thing to get to. And if you can't, um, you know, uh, I think you got to think a little bit long and hard about, you know, sort of how you get to the uh, a, a sort of place that investors do actually care to fund you, which certainly seems like right now it's all about unit economics and strong growth. You kind of have to check a whole bunch of boxes, whereas in the last two years you might have only needed to check a few. Uh, And so I think you got to be really honest about what that looks like if you're not able to get to that cash flow positive mark.
1: Great advice. Well, thank you, Christina and Wade, for being part of the inaugural episode of Same Same But Different. Everyone, please keep an eye out on our Twitter channel, where we'll soon announce the next episode of Same Same But Different. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so
2: much.